Chapter 14 What Now? Once I could see, once I could feel, now I am numb, I've become unreal. Pierre Delanoue What Now? The plan was set, and it had been decided quickly. They would do it Monday, 9 a.m. The plan was to meet in one place and then travel all together in the same vehicle. But where should we meet? The church parking lot, Nathan heard himself say out loud. Bruce's words were still looping around in his brain, tightening like a vice grip. If you're not right with your God, not right with what's inside of you. There's a way to do this, and I'll take the lead, Clyde had volunteered. He used to be my boy. It should be me that does it. Does what? Now it was Sunday... Clyde sat quietly in the overstuffed recliner chair that had been crammed into the tiny apartment that was his refuge. The day was empty and gray, a shapeless and never-ending cluster of lonely hours to be endured, maybe for the last time. Freezing rain pelted the metal roof above him, hammering his thoughts with the cold cruelty of memories and longing. It was all hopeless, and there was no denying that he had played a part in all of it. His thick and clumsy fingers pinched a faded photograph. It was of two ghosts, Rebecca and Abram, and they were wrapped in the bright chlorophyll green of the apple orchard in late spring, his wife and son posing together. The little hands of his elementary-aged son were clutching a giant frog, and he was holding it up for his mother to see. It was a fleeting moment of happiness, captured and suspended in time like the flap of a butterfly's wing. Rebecca had loved this photograph, pointing to its spot on the mantle whenever she recounted her fantasies about the past, calling it out as proof that goodness and innocence had existed, as if saying it made it so. Clyde had let her have her stories, and she took them with her, when she abandoned them both. To Clyde, the photo was proof of something else, and he was recalling the day in his mind. The beautiful boy with the thick black hair had been studying him. The photograph shows the child watching, waiting for Clyde to put the camera down, waiting for his mother to throw her head back and laugh with eyes closed, just like she always did. Then... At just the right moment, he had gone on to compress the frog, squeezing it with his bare hands until it had exploded, spraying his mother's skin and mouth with liquid terror. All the while, Clyde stood apoplectic while Rebecca screamed, and Abram smiled quietly. This photograph was not proof of light. It was proof of a calculating darkness that had always been present, and now always would be. I failed you, God, I failed you. Clyde was sobbing now. But I won't fail you again. Across town, Dr. Karen sat in her living room while Ed made coffee in the kitchen. Ed had insisted on following her home, on protecting her until Monday morning. Being alone was dangerous. They were safer together. I'm about to bring in one more load of wood for the wood stove before it gets dark. After that, we'll have everything we need to stay holed up in here until tomorrow, Ed said, while positioning the mug of fresh coffee down onto the end table next to his boss. 
He was slipping on his rubber boots when he added, I'll lock the door behind me and unlock it myself when I return. You are not to open the door for anyone, okay? Okay, Ed, the doctor agreed flatly, her mind clearly somewhere else. Bach's concerto in D minor played softly as the wood stove popped and crackled, the fire trying, in vain, to push back the gloom of the ice storm. Beyond the reach of the fire's glow was the dining table, and it was piled high with boxes. Diprovan, 1,000 milligrams, 24 count. Latex gloves, large, 50 count. Two venipuncture IV kits. Dynarex hypodermic needles, 50 count. Syringe plungers, 50 count. Amelia was reviewing the supplies in her head. Had she missed anything? She left her seat on the couch and wandered over to the large table to obsess about the details, for this was how she coped. Stay focused, she thought. We may not get a second chance. She cradled the coffee in her hands as she counted and recounted the contents of each box, hoping Nathan would remember what he was supposed to bring. She looked up. Hold on. Where's Ed? Getting to the woodpile and back should only take about five minutes. Ed! She called out through the side entrance door of her A-frame. She ran to the front window and strained to see over to the side of the house. Nothing. Then she ran to the kitchen's large patio door to scan the backyard. Ed! She screamed, her panic echoing off the glass. No answer. Sheriff Randall had no reason to go home. The station was his home, and he felt better there. The scene at the top of Fire Lane 6 was now in the hands of the state investigators. He had a press briefing to prepare for, and he was starting on his notes. At approximately 11.45 a.m. yesterday, the body of Linda May Doyle, age 61, was found at the head of Fire Lane 6. The death is being ruled a homicide. Because this is an active investigation, all details are being withheld at this time. If you have any information related to the death of Ms. Doyle, please call the sheriff's office immediately. His words rang hollow. He already knew there would be no calls to the sheriff's office, and, maybe after tomorrow, there would be no sheriff. The town was in chaos, and the scene at the school on Monday was expected to be difficult, to say the least. Miss Linda had been a much-loved member of this community. She had also been his friend. Nathan wanted to mourn her. He wanted to process what he had seen, her pathfinder still idling, her remains flung back under the tailpipe. No blood, no sign of a struggle. He spun around in his chair and looked out his window across the back lot. The glistening ice now covered the painted parking lines. The sanding trucks would be out soon. Why don't I feel anything? He worried softly. Stoicism, battle fatigue, professionalism. Years of service had made these traits nearly impossible to turn off. And yet, hardcore detachment was exactly what was needed at this moment, and for the moments to come. The sheriff turned back around to face his desk, and he opened the bottom drawer. A stiff and shiny King James Bible looked back at him. He picked it up and took out the small laminated card that had been tucked inside, a gift from the bookstore owner. It makes a great bookmark, she'd said. 
His eyes followed the words on the card. Psalm 23.4 Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Then he stopped reading. Nathan Randall dropped the book down firmly, and he stood up, his tall and sturdy frame easily commanding the space that was his office. I don't fear any evil, and I guess I never have. He walked back over to the window, his spine straightening as he called out, And I'm coming for you, you son of a bitch. What Now? Written and performed by Bridget Emmons. Thanks for listening.